Hello, I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And you're listening to episode 80 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. So we're recording this on 20th of February 2020 here in Dragon Hall. And yesterday we had hundreds of tiny people in the building. We did. We did. It was our uh, See, Make, Do, Drop-In Family Open Day. It was lovely, wasn't it? It was really nice to have the building full of young people and families exploring all of the, the different parts and different rooms, taking part in some activities. Yeah, we had like building a book and a little book nook. Yeah, we had a book nook with lots of book reading. There's some great storytelling. People were making bookmarks, lots of activities and some activity packs as well. So uh, it's very nice to see the building full of young life. Yeah. You get to see all the imaginations of tiny people. They do come out with some funny things <laughs> as well. They do. There was some comedy gold yesterday. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And you never know, some of them, 20 years from now. Aspiring writers. Yeah, this, this might have been the moment. Saw some impressive uh, bits of writing, actually. I think Roisin posted on social media some of the, the stories that came out of yesterday about Dragon Hall. And they were very, uh, yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, check those out on Instagram. I was looking at who's been listening to the podcast in the last week and just wanted to say hello to everyone who lives in the villages Oh, yeah, in Florida. Oh, okay. I thought you meant just general villages. No, not, so just, that's just, not villages generally. Just villages across the country. Yeah, oh, the villages in Florida. This is an area of Florida called the villages. Wow. And apparently it's one of the best and friendliest places to retire. Of course we've attracted those people. Yeah, lots Sounds of golf. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Golfers and writers yep. and readers. So if you're there enjoying your retirement and listening to our podcast, then hello. Hello. Uh, so on today's episode, we have Cat Woodward, poet, talking to Florence Reynolds. Flo's been on the podcast a few times now, and Cat uh, and Flo have actually collaborated on various poetry projects in the past. But this was an opportunity for Flo to talk to Cat about her practice and how she became a poet. And there's a lot in here about how Kat decided to take her writing seriously. Okay. And kind of at what point she did that and getting published and working with small presses in particular and Mm. why she opts for that approach. Uh, It's really, yeah, anyone who is writing poetry and isn't quite sure where to go next or how to kind of take it a bit more professionally. This is a really great podcast for lots of tips around that stuff. And it's nice to have a poet back on the podcast because it's been a while. It has. Uh, We've had poets mentioned as part of the International Literature Showcases, of course. But I think the last time we had a poet on the show properly might have been all the way back in episode eight. Blimey, that was a while ago. Yeah, it was Ben Ockrey. Oh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, so at least it was... Someone of that stature. It was a high bar, yeah. Yes, but uh, yeah, so apologies to poetry fans for our slight oversight there. But hopefully Cat Woodward will more than make up for it. So we can just have a chat about poetry and I'll ask you questions and I'll ask you to read one of your... Look, I spended all of my wisdom at the sushi restaurant. We'll we'll try and get it back. (laughs) (laughs) We've got time. So the first question I would like to ask you is a bit about how you came to write Blood, Flower, Joy, your new collection, which is coming from Knives, Forks and Spoons Press very soon. Um, How did those poems kind of coalesce and come together? I think it started from my my doctoral research initially, because I was looking into lyric voice and concepts of subjectivity, and it got me very interested in the notion of, I guess, lyric enunciation and speaking at all. Um, and then it's 
went from that to a sort of diaristic delirium that I couldn't seem to stop doing. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a very shaky start. I started writing all these strange poems. Um, And when you say diaristic, were you you just writing a little bit every day? Was it that kind of... Well, they were all related to something that was happening to me at the time. Mm. And all of the poems in the collection are in the original order that they were written in. Mm. Because I wanted to keep some of that through line. Was there any technique you were trying out at that time or did, did it feel somehow different to your previous work yeah I wanted to make it fun yeah <laughs> yeah my last work had been such a grueling awful time of my life and I love it but it was really painful in lots of ways and part of me just wanted to write something fun yeah and so I started working a lot more with rhyme and rhythm and strangeness and spellcraft and eventually I started finding um, a sense of coherency in the poems I was writing. Mm. They started off sort of rocky and um, then suddenly I was writing hexes. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) And like Shakespearean fool rhymes. I I was taking this idea of the Shakespearean fool quite seriously in the early days. I just wanted to be a nuisance. Yeah. I, I wanted to write nuisance poems, which you couldn't help but say again. I wanted people to want to repeat them. Fantastic. That's such a rich, um, I mean, array of, of themes and techniques and, Too many. <laughs> and emotions that you wanted your, that this, the poems in this collection, as you say, to have a slightly different tone from what you've written in the past. I was just sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> I had enough, I'd had enough of misery. Mm. And I wonder if you could say a bit about how you, all the way back when, how you started writing poetry, what was the motivation to start with? And if you could kind of take us through um, your writing career to date, because your your biography is quite fascinating. And it's the first sentence is, Cat Woodward is a feminist lyric poet. And that's such a... um, Bold statement. A bold (laughs) statement, yeah. And I wonder how you've kind of arrived at that bold statement for your work and who you are as a writer well feminism and lyric are the things I care about Mm. and they come through in a big way in my writing and so I wanted to make that clear from the start whenever I have to submit a third person biography Mm. well I'm pretty sure that every 16 year old writes shitty poetry inevitably so I just carried on Mm -hmm. (laughs) I started and then I didn't stop yeah great why not (laughs) Yeah, I decided to take it seriously, um, and it went through varying degrees of shitness until it stopped being shit. Mm-hmm. But it took me a, at least 10 years. <laughs> it takes as long as it takes, I think, uh, yes. a, a wise writer once said. But you've, you've published widely in poetry journals. Your first collection, Sphinx, was published by Salo Press, who are a wonderful small press based in Norwich and now um, Bloodflower Joy is your second collection and that's with Knives, Forks and Spoons press. Is that a typical trajectory for a poet do you think and how have you found moving from publishing poems in ones and twos and journals into creating a more substantial piece of work which might be 10, 20 poems in in a book? Um, How's that transition been for you? Well, the process for assembling Sphinx and the process for assembling Bloodflower Joy were really different mm-hmm. because Sphinx was every acceptable poem I could gather 
over six years. So it took me six years to write this very, very slim book. Um, and I felt like it was time to put together something substantial and to make that debut and to take myself seriously as a poet. So it was sort of clutching at straws in a way, and I was just bringing together everything I could. But by the time I had released that, I got some confidence from it. And so mm. Bloodflower Joy is the product of a much more conscious and sustained project. I mean, it started in that weird sort of way I was describing, but it developed and I decided to run with it. And eventually I realized I'd written the last poem. <laughs> the last lines are, if I get this right, in heaven there's a long list of things that ought to die. I think I'd just gotten too sad to keep going, <laughs> to be honest. I think I just hit a point, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, these are just going to get more and more miserable if I keep going. But I, I do joke about that a little bit. I found that I felt as if I'd run my course with it, hmm. as it was such a strange style and required so much energy and focus, because the way I'd write it is I'd lines and words and such would come to me in snatches and I'd write them all down in word documents and on little scraps of paper and eventually they'd coalesce when I realized what the rhythm was turning out to be and then it would develop based on that rhythm and that flowing sense of rhyme and it just got to the point when I felt like I couldn't do them anymore yeah. and I thought rather than try to force any more out I thought that's it it's finished yeah some kind of intuitive sense that this is the collection and then presumably you moved into the editing phase which I know from having spoken to you you love to edit editing is my favorite thing can, can you talk a bit about your editing process and um, maybe do you have a top tip for how to edit well I have a whole complicated structure for how to edit but, uh, oh, we'd love to hear it <laughs> um, I suppose the the top tip that I would want to Im impress on any writer is that the creative process doesn't happen and then the editing happens mm -hmm. the creative process continues throughout the editing itself is creative mm -hmm. I always found that I didn't know exactly what I was trying to say until I'd done the editing and it was in the editing stage that the poem took shape as a thing it was supposed to be mm -hmm. and the editing is another stage of that problem solving and that discovering and that creative energy it's just in a different Format. You're not generating, you're moving and cutting and changing and shaping it into what it was supposed to be all along. Mm. Yeah, that's that's so, um, I certainly find that to be true, but there's something quite daunting almost about the word editing in a way. It that, hurts, right? Yeah. Like, the, oh no, my babies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you get over that and into this place where you love to edit and it's crucial to your work as a poet and how you've created this beautiful new collection? The answer is really boring. I discovered drafting. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you say more? I've, I've had this with students before. They don't want to edit and they, they're really precious about their work. Saying, but you're going to ruin it. I'm never going to get it back. It's going to be destroyed. I say, okay, write a copy, put the original mm -hmm. in a drawer. We're going to edit the copy and it frees you up so much to do that because the original is always going to be the same you're never destroying anything you're never really changing anything because you can always make copies mm. and realizing that made me relax about the whole process yeah like nothing has to be destroyed yeah just 
open a new Word document and yeah, copy so paste and away you go. But then it's learning to not think about it as being destroyed for a start. Like you're not finished at your first draft mm. and you're not making your work less by editing it. You're making it more itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm really struck in the poems in Bloodflower Joy. They're very minimalist in form. You know, they're only a few lines long. As a collection, it's so cohesive and motifs and little riffs that kind of reappear and, you know, slight, just slight alterations and variations throughout different characters pop up here and there. I wonder, you said how at the end and doing the editing, that's how you know that the poem is what it was meant to be. If I can take you back to the start again, just to ramble all over your poems um, chronologically. At the beginning, do you set out with a particular effect or idea that you want to talk about? And is is because I've spoken to you in the past about poetry being quite mechanical or like a puzzle, and it's finding the right form for for whatever it is you want to say. Yeah, I do consider writing poetry as a problem solving exercise, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily as cold as it sounds I have a rough idea of the sort of thing I want to communicate or express but I don't trouble myself too much about how I'm going to get there Mm. I'm going to try out a lot of different avenues and a lot of different expressions and words and means until something starts to look right Mm. and then once I have something small I'll use it and I'll change it and I'll edit it and I'll do more and more and more until I feel like I'm at what I wanted to say, which is usually not what I wanted, what I thought I was going to say in the beginning, is being open to letting that change. I'd like to talk a bit about your pamphlet, Hot Damn, oh, which right. you self-published a few years ago, and some of those poems then went into your previous collection, Sphinx. And um, I'm doing, I'm hosting an event uh, tomorrow with a wonderful self-published author called Mandy Stanley, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experience of putting your poems out there in, in a self-published pamphlet um, because they've had they've had an afterlife published by a small press um, but there's there's something about creating your own pamphlet of poems in a way isn't there can you can you talk about that that work well I almost regret it a little bit because part of me thinks I wasn't ready for that but I just so wanted to put out something mm-hmm. and self-publishing is such a good avenue for being able to do that and take that leap and make that experiment. I guess there's no reason to be embarrassed about it because people liked it. But, Someone yeah. got a tattoo, didn't they, of the cover oh, they art? Did. <laughs> yeah, I I drew the, the crappest cover art um, on my iPad of little ghosts coming out of a cart of spilled milk and somebody got the ghost <laughs> tattooed on his body yeah so they definitely liked it yeah and it it was really nice for me to see some of those poems again in a collection that you know was published by by a press and it got better (laughs) yeah it did i i'm being a bit cruel about my own pamphlet I, i think it's the way i feel about my pamphlet is almost the way one feels when you wake up with a hangover and you think oh what did i do and you can't tell whether it was good or bad like I can remember everything, but I feel like my judgment was off. Yeah, I think I, I unduly regret I shouldn't. It yeah. was fine. I think it's, it, 
you know, it's a bold statement to do your own project in that way and to publish your own work. And I don't clearly, think I even have a copy of it anymore. <laughs> clearly, bold statements are, are your your thing. One of one of the hallmarks of your style and your concerns. Like us. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kat, I'm I'm really interested because, as you said, this second collection was much more of a project, more intentional. You've set out with an idea of wanting to create something substantial rather than simply collecting the poems that had kind of accrued over a period of time. And then you found this wonderful small press, Knives, Forks and Spoons. And I wondered how you found um, small, small publishers who were willing to publish your poetry and what the process has been like working with a small press. I do really like small presses. It's a lot more intimate and there's more control over the process and it's it's done for the love of it. Like I, I went to an indie book fair recently and every single person at those stores was just so delighted by everything that was there and that they were doing. Um, as it feels very wholesome, <laughs> I guess I'd say working with an indie, an indie press. I, I haven't had much luck with bigger presses. I... So I'm with Knives, Forks and Spoons because I, I had a big list of publishers who I might like to publish my book and I was going for the more experimental end and included larger publishers and smaller publishers and I submitted Bloodflower Joy to so many places and I was ignored by most of them. Others took months to get back and it was gruelling and I hated it and I was about to give up. And then one day I thought, okay... I will submit to Knives, Forks and Spoons next. And that day, uh, the editor sent me an email that said, these are bloody brilliant. I'd love to publish them. And that was it. In a day. So I was waiting months and months on these other publishers and I got a one-day turnaround. Yeah, that's so interesting because you clearly, you'd looked at the whole publishing ecosystem that there is with poetry and you'd kind of found the... um, I suppose the broad area that your work would fit into and then just a case of going down the list until you found your niche. How did you keep that belief in your manuscript during that process? Well, lucky for me, it won a prize. Fantastic. <laughs> <So laughs> yeah, so I was like, well, it's, it can't be that bad. So I just need to find the right publisher. But it was very demoralising, as you can imagine. And eventually it just became a numbers game. I thought, if I keep doing this, eventually I'll find somebody, I hope. And the prize, did that has that given you a boost in terms of not only, you know, the, the sense within yourself of being proud of this body of work, but did you find that entering the prize gave any other benefits? It always been my ambition to win a poetry prize. Mm. And now I have. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, big, big check. Mission accomplished. It done. <laughs> uh, which has been really good for my confidence. And it did make me believe in the collection because it, it was a hard collection to believe in because it's so weird. Mm. I, I still haven't found anything that sounds quite like it. And it was a big gamble to write something like this and put it out into the world because my worry was that people were just going to look at it and just be like, what is this shit? <laughs> yeah. Which I think people will think that. But the prize panel didn't think that. So I've got that. I have that to hang on to. Lingers his hyacinth, picking up what I put down. 
Enchant someone's little blue husband in the hawthorn. Away my grievance with his blushing blue frankincense. Who needs her innocence? When I die, I go to boy heaven. <laughs> I love Lovely. that one. <laughs> I, I feel like sound is quite important to that. Reading it on the page and hearing, hearing you read it, hearing the assonances and the, the rhythm and these little kind of half rhymes and rhymes smug ending (laughs) nice smug ending um it sounds something that's important very very important Mm. yeah i i I write for the page but i write everything intending for it to be spoken and performed and enjoyed because i care so much about rhyme and rhythm and speed and the whole temporal performance of a poem it's an event to Mm. me and that event takes place sonically yeah and that goes back i suppose to lyric poetry yeah Um, very much about voice and voicing i'd like to ask you a little bit about what you're writing now and what the next steps in your writing career might be are you you working on a new project i am I've, i've been working on a new project in that way that people say they're working on new projects so it seems like they're busy i got halfway through and got stuck Um, And I'm just sort of working up the strength to get back into it again. Um, But it's called Imitations, and the idea is to take the styles of poets who I respect or feel particularly close to and imitate it to my own purposes. Mm. Um, It's been really challenging in some ways, partially because I've ended up with these really emotional themes that are really close to me so the actual writing of it is difficult on me personally Mm. but then there's also the stylistic problems like working out what is it that makes a writer sound like them Mm. trying to not replicate it but insert myself into that voice and then this strange situation of social guilt at having done that I I think the project probably stemmed from a sort of loneliness. I I wanted to be able to speak with rather than speak as, you know, and it just seems because I'm so mechanically minded, it seemed like a very mechanical way to engineer a sense of poetic community. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose that's the nature nature of the experiment I'm doing. Mm. That's that's fascinating because that's such a, it's almost like a series of exercises that you've set yourself yeah, you know, a, a kind of as you say, quite mechanical challenge. At the end, you end up with some poems, and as you say, they're not exact copies or direct imitations of the styles of other poets. There's there's your interpretation of those. Will those stay as they are, or will you be working them into some other form? I'm I'm just wondering how you go from from something like an exercise where you're really kind of flexing your muscles and mm-hmm. testing yourself and and finding solutions to problems and what the finished article might look like for this project. I have a very clear vision for this one actually because when I set out I wanted it to be six sections around 10 poems, 60 max, minimum 45. Mm-hmm. Um, and I test out each new invitation so I select who I want to imitate and I do a few trials if I think it's going to work I'll continue the project and when I get to nine or ten I'll stop I don't know what came over me I decided to make this incredibly rigid yeah sometimes that helps though doesn't it having having that constraint to write within 
I think I needed it for this project. So it could so easily go wildly out of control or mm. equally never happen at all. You've been a student in Norwich. You've um, lived in, in Norwich for a long time. Nine and years. Nine years. And I wonder if something about being in a city of literature, how that may or may not have impacted your writing practice? I, I still think that Norwich is possibly the best city in the world, not one of. It's, it's so good to be in a place where everything is happening. Mm. It's, it's a place where there are literary events all the time. I'm surrounded by writers and poets especially. This seems, I, I swear you throw a rock in now to hit a poet. <laughs> Hopefully not fatally. <laughs> I haven't tried it myself. But it's so good to feel part of something and that what you're doing matters and belongs. It's been such an encouragement to keep going. It gives me... It just makes me excited about doing it. It's good to not be alone doing it. It's incredibly important to me, that sense of community. And the literary community here is just wonderful. Yeah, and it's fascinating how that is actually coming through in this new project, writing with the works mm. of others and, as you say, a kind of being with, yeah, within exactly. a poem. To be with another person. It's If Bloodflower Joy was all about exploring what it is to to voice, like to be this empty node of a subject whose voicing can be repeated by others and passed along. This this new project is about voicing with. Yeah, I suppose everything I write is a variation on the same theme of what it is to speak in the context of others speaking. With, with Bloodflower Joy, it really means a lot to me, this idea that someone might want to say the poems themselves. It's one of the reasons I made them so catchy and and nuisance like <laughs> I want I want them to have some sort of earworm about them mm. because I want them to belong to somebody else's voice as well yeah there's elements of nursery rhyme and, and pop song oh, hell yeah there's a punchline there's a whole bit that's just mostly Christmas carols yeah great <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can tell it was Christmas when I was writing this section so I'm wondering just to finish up whether you could share perhaps your top three insights into the kind of nuts and bolts of your practice and life. I've just remembered a phrase that I'm forever telling students, which is poems aren't made of magic, they're made of words. And as such, there's no, there's no need to overly romanticise or feel intimidated by the magic that poetry is. It's, to me anyway, it's a very mechanical thing which is achieved through technical choices and training and editing and I, I keep coming back to this that I have a very mechanical approach and that that can strike a bit of a bum note with some people because poetry is such a wonderful thing it does so many wonderful things to us that it's tempting to see it as this unexplainable mystery that only great people with lots of talent can do but it's I don't think anything is improved by ignorance it's like Poetry is wonderful, so I want to know why it's wonderful, how it works. And if I know how it works, then I can make wonderful things as well. And so I guess I say, don't be afraid of the technical stuff. Don't be afraid of grammar and syntax and editing and where you put your words on the page. Like, it all matters, all this small stuff. It's, it's, not, it's not a cold consideration. It's the very essence of what makes poetry wonderful. I love that. And 
Last of all, I will ask you to just recommend a resource or the work of another poet that that has meant something to you or has proven useful or, or heartening. And if you wouldn't mind sharing your recommendations. Well, how am I supposed to decide? I know, it's a tough one. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, it's my, my friend Adam Warren, mm. I think, writes some of the best poetry being written in the UK today. Mm. And he's at a very early stage in his career, and he's not put out a whole bunch, but what he has put out has just blown my mind. Yeah. Um, and I used his work as one of my imitation voices. Mm. Um, I think we do have a lot in common, and it was just very inspiring and encouraging to read his work, and I would recommend it to anybody. Yeah, he has a, pam- a pamphlet called Suffolk Bang, oh, doesn't Suffolk he, Bang by Gatehouse Press. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Kat. Thanks for listening and thanks to Cat and Flo. So Steph, is there anything else we should be telling people about? One thing I would like to give a shout out to is a workshop that we've got coming up next week. So that's Friday the 28th of February. It's called The Language of Food with Cara Marks. Now I haven't just picked this out because I really, really like food. And mm-hmm. I think everyone in the office probably knows that. We do like um, eating. We do. Uh, I think it's just going to be a really exciting, interesting workshop. It focuses on food and the language of food. Cara is a very experienced tutor and writer, and she's also doing a PhD in, I think it's food and empathy and literature, which I think sounds fascinating. And this is a kind of short half-day workshop, quite informal with sort of discussion and exercises and some reading. Um, you can get some feedback on your work if you'd like it you don't have to and it is uh, it's great for anyone who's writing fiction who'd like to sort of sprinkle some culinary details into their writing it's like a little Um, shortcut to character and setting isn't it it is Um, I was doing a bit of reading earlier actually about sort of memorable literary moments featuring food and there really are some (laughs) some standout ones um, it's also great for anyone who writes non-fiction or is thinking of, you know, maybe starting up a food blog or would like to do some food journalism. I think it could be used for both. So this is, as I said, it's a short workshop. It's 2 to 5 p.m. next Friday, the 28th of February. Um, there's a few places left with Cara. And I'm not really a, a regular writer, but uh, I just think this sounds really fascinating. Yeah, so yeah, go to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and you'll find all the info over there. February 28th is a big day. That's when I'm launching my new online cereal. Is it? So it's a scary time. Online cereal, like munchies. Munchy No, not like munchies. Cornflakes cereal. Words stuff. We were talking about food, so I just... Okay, did we miss a really good segue there? Yeah. Mm, That'd be good. So normally at this point we list off a massive reel of things we'd like you to follow and subscribe to, but instead today we're just going to ask... If you listen to the podcast and if you like it, think of one friend who's a writer who might like it and doesn't currently know about it. And please do tell them. Yes. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode. When I don't have a cold. Cold.